So we are starting today with Martin Luther. And Martin Luther, whether if you know some things about him, he's kind of an interesting guy. He's an extreme personality. Um, I'm not 100% sure that if uh, if we were acquaintances that he and I would be super close friends. I, he's kind of a bombastic person at times. Uh, but I, I also think he's a person that um, maybe was necessary for the place and time that he was in. So um, I'm going to go through his life. And then at the end, there's a broad range of things we could discuss. But um, I want you to feel free that as I go to, to kind of speak in. So this is a little bit different for me in terms of teaching a class, just like going through history and talking about somebody's um, life. But their uh, theology intersects with Luther's life and issues of the Catholics and Protestants and the Reformation certainly do too. Um, so the Reformation is, is certainly a thing of ideas. It's a, it's a movement of ideas. It's an event that was focused on ideas. But it's also, there's people and there's personalities and there's a lot of other things going on. So feel free to jump in. I didn't put discussion questions throughout, but that's how I like to teach. I like to interact as we go. So you'll make me ha a happier teacher if you do. All right. So early life, Luther. Luther, um, you actually, originally his name was Luther um, instead of Luther, but Luther was like a more sophisticated, so they, they changed it to Luther. But Martin Luther was born in 1483 to Hans and Margaret. His father had uh, prepared him to study for a career in law. His father had high hopes for Luther. Luther was a very bright student, very intelligent, and studying law was, was lucrative. Becoming a monk was not. Um, so his father set him to prepare for a career in law, um, but this was not to be. So one day Martin was caught in a storm, and, and Luther had a, he, he was a fearful person early on in his life. So he is caught in this storm, and um, this lightning storm, he's, he's, he's afraid he's going to die. So he calls out to St. Anne. And again, where we talked about last week, um, that people didn't usually call out to pray to Jesus. That wasn't how they prayed. It was, you needed to pray through other mediators. And, and this is a big thing in Luther's life. He saw Christ, he saw God as this really harsh judge. He was scared of God and even sometimes struggled with hating God because he saw God as this, this very harsh judge ready to, to fry him, if you will. Um, so he's, he calls out to St. Anne, um, basically saying, if, if I'll, I'll become a monk if my life is spared. And um, his life, he doesn't die in the lightning storm, and he becomes a monk. He takes his, and his father is furious, absolutely furious at this. His father said that the devil sent the lightning storm, not God, and this was a, an attempt to get him off of his law career, which seems a little unlikely. But his father was, was infuriated at this, and he didn't have a good relationship with um, Luther after that. Uh, his father once came and watched one of his, I think it was his first, uh, his first mass that Luther led, and Luther was like, shaking. He, was, he took all of this so seriously, and his father's like, you're just you're a total loser. You lost everything. All the things that I, all the hopes and dreams I had of you becoming successful and rich, and you gave it up from being a monk, and you're not even a very good priest. So anyway, things didn't go well with that relationship. So Luther is the monk. So as a monk, Luther was incredibly passionate and sincere. Um, he Not only did he believe he had to perform all the prayers, all the rules, he had to sing, he had to mean it too. And this is where he really struggled. Because he, you're doing these things over and over all day long, all the hours of the day, you're getting up, you're doing these prayers, you're singing these songs, 
and then he's he's examining himself. Am I really sincere? So if he had a day off, he would use it to catch up to try to be sincere. Watch out. Uh, be sincere in his prayers because he was worried that if, you know if I'm not sincere, it won't count for anything. So Luther was Luther was in really struggled um, as a monk and. Famously, he, his, his confessions would sometimes go six hours. Um, and I, I should have put the quote in here, but Luther's confession, confessor at one point said, can you just go out and commit real sins? Like, you know, kill somebody or, you know, commit adultery. Or I guess he couldn't have committed adultery. He wasn't married. But do some real sins because I'm tired of you, like, searching your mind for every little thing you did wrong. Um, actually, his confessor, which has a great name for a confessor, I suppose, is Stop It. It's like, you know, stop Stop whatever you're doing. <laughs> but Stoppitz was a huge uh, influence in Luther's life. Stoppitz often spoke grace to Luther's fear of his condemnation. And Luther um, would later say that Reformation wouldn't have happened without, without Stoppitz. But um, anyway, even after these six-hour marathon, can you imagine being Luther's confess- confessor, uh, listening to him racking his brains for all of his sins, for six hours, but there was this whole idea that it's not good enough to just do these rituals and do the check off these boxes. If I'm not sincere, then it doesn't mean anything. It's not any good. And how can I know that my heart is really sincere? So he felt this pressure of, of his own salvation, if you will, and uh, and he was he could never be at rest. Had he done enough? Were his motivations right? Was he just trying to? Um, save himself from hell because that's not a good motivation that's not really out of like love for god or doing the right thing so if he's just doing all these things and filling out all these boxes so he doesn't go to hell then my motivations are wrong so luther is really stuck and trapped and a tortured soul we'll put it that way um all right so luther was terrified is he um in leading his first mass as a priest he prayed to god directly for the first time in his life so think about that very different from us. Um, he never had prayed to God in his life. He, he prayed to saints. He prayed to Mary. But the idea that God is this, is this judge and we're too, we're too far removed from God to speak to him. But when he's leading his first mass as a priest, then he has to pray to God for the elements. And this was a terrifying moment for him. A terrifying moment to stand before God in prayer. So without protection of Mary or the saints. So, also in secret, and against the rules for monks. So, there was different orders of monks, and later on he's going to become an Augustinian monk. The rules are going to be a little bit different. But, um, in his order of monks, monks were not supposed to read the Bible um, on their own. This was completely the, the role of the church to tell you what the Bible says, or you are reading, um, you're reading prayers, you're reading liturgies, but you're not directly interacting with the Bible. That was kind of a dangerous thing for you to do on your own, is the idea. So, Luther begins spending his spare time reading the Bible, and why is he he's looking for some hope for his soul? Because he, he is he's a tortured, tortured soul. So, in 1510, um, so at the age, what is that, of uh, 27, Luther is sent to Rome on behalf of his monastery. So, he's going to represent his monastery in Rome. And this was a, for, for Luther, he's, he's ecstatic at this, because this is a great opportunity because in Rome, there's all of these relics. There's the, the bodies of the saints have been buried in Rome. Um, the apostles are supposedly in Rome. And so, in the idea of the day, he 
by by being close to these things and by being um, in the same place that they're buried, he, he's get, going to gain grace for for his soul. So he, this is a wonderful thing. So um, this this is spiritual beneficial, spiritually beneficial to him. Um, but actually, his time in Rome didn't didn't do him much good. At least initially, he thought um, it led to more doubts because he sees he sees corruption, insincerity, false miracles. There's this woman that lived in Rome at the time who claimed to have only been sustained by. By the by, the Eucharist, by the bread. That was all she ate, and she didn't eat anything else. Just just the, the Eucharistic mass. So he went to see her, and in his interaction with her, she didn't care anything about spiritual things. Um, and he's this is like leading to doubts. There's all this these trappings and these things, and and it doesn't feel sincere or real. So he's thinking Rome should be the center of of worship and of you know of of the of the church, and he's looking for for salvation for his soul for comfort. But instead, he's seeing corruption, and he's, he's seeing things that trouble him even further. So, when he returns, his, his, um, his confessor transfers him to an Augustinian monastery, and he, this gives him greater freedom with the Bible, and he becomes a, theology of te- uh, a teacher of theology at the University of Wittenberg. And so he starts really studying the Bible here at this point, um, and he's teaching through Galatians and Romans, and he's, he's really especially becoming familiar with Paul. Um, also in Wittenberg, just to kind of give you context here, there was this huge collection of 19,000 relics at this castle church. And if you venerated each one of them, they could take up to 1,900,000 days off of purgatory. So Wittenberg was considered to be, you know, a, a good place to be um, from that regard. All right. Any kind of, I'm going to stop every once in a while. Um, any, any thoughts, questions, remarks up to this point? Yeah, that when you were talking about the confessions of Luther, mm-hmm. the the quote I heard from the um, confessor from Sopitz was something like, uh, "Love Christ and sin mm-hmm. boldly." Mm-hmm. He just said, "Enough, <laughs> yeah. love Christ mm-hmm. and sin boldly." Mm-hmm. Basically, like you said, mm-hmm. do something worth confessing. Yeah, yeah. Spend this long, and that's and then again, Sopitz was really key to yeah. Luther. As Sopitz spoke grace to Luther, but Luther didn't feel grace. Mm-hmm. He felt he felt only condemnation from God. Yeah. Do we know? Was it Stoppitz who sent him to Wittenberg? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Stoppitz was Stoppitz arranged for this. So Stoppitz is like, you need to be studying these things specifically so that he could get his nose into scripture more. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. that was a large part of it. Mm-hmm. This is this is really where you need to be. Yeah. Luther actually was worried that this would um, jeopardize his soul. Like he's moving away from the monastery and doing all of these sorts of things. <laughs> Where stop it says like no this is this should be your your path. Good. Any other thoughts questions? So what we have here is Luther is um, he's he's a very again I've said this many times he's a tortured soul looking for salvation but never sure he can have it right. So that's some of the context of who Luther is and where his ideas are going to come. But he's also a very sincere person. So now in Wittenberg he's going to be. A pastor, in some sense, as well, um, and some of the some of his pastoral ministry here is going to lead him to some conflicts with the church. I didn't put it in the notes, but one thing that really troubled him was um, there was a young boy who committed suicide, and when the young when you commit suicide, this is a this is a mortal sin. You're going to hell, 
at this point, and there's no hope, and you're not supposed to bury their body. You're not supposed to give them a Christian burial. And Luther just couldn't accept that. So Luther kind of defied the rules, and he buried him. But he, this, this whole idea that God's grace couldn't extend there troubled him, right? So some of his pastoral, I, I didn't emphasize this in the notes so much, but some of his pastoral concerns set the groundwork for Luther. Now, one thing, one thing before we move into the, really the, the famous moments, there are some myths about uh, Luther and then nailing the 95 theses and some things that are in popular thought. People think this happened this way that probably didn't. And another thing to think is that Luther did not, uh, it wasn't, Luther didn't go from good Catholic to anti-Catholic in a night. It, there, was, there was years of his thought evolving. Um, but Tetzel and the 95 Theses are going to be a big part of, of where this starts. So during this time, there is a traveling evangelist by the name of Johann Tetzel. And Johann Tetzel is selling indulgences in Germany. And he's, he's been commissioned by the church um, in Rome to raise money for St. Peter's Basilica. So they want to rebuild this, this church for St. Peter. Um, there was a lot of kind of guilt tripping kind of thing that go in there that the bones of the apostles are out in the rain. And um, anyway, those kinds of things. And Tetzel was very effective. He raised lots of money for Rome. Um, he played off the fears and guilts of common peasants. And Luther was really disturbed by what he heard and witnessed. Witness. This is famous if you study you know, world history, medieval history. But when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. So there's all this, there's two kind of things he's selling. You can buy indulgences for yourself so that you can have your sins forgiven. Sometimes even before you commit them, you're, I, I'm planning on committing this sin so I can buy an indulgence so that this sin is forgiven. But there's also your, your ancestors and your, your mom and your dad and your grandma. They're, they're in purgatory. They're suffering in purgatory. And by your donation, you can you can help them get out of purgatory. Now, this is what this is what Tetzel is doing. Um, one one famous sermon he uh, he said, uh, "Don't you hear the voices of your wailing dead parents and others who say, have mercy on me, because we are in severe punishment and pain, and from this you can redeem us for with a small alms. So pay this money, get your your ancestors out of purgatory." And he he said, "You don't need to even repent." Only money. Again, this is these are things that he would say. Um, the indulgence could free you or a relative from any sin. He said, even raping the mother of God can be forgiven for money if you pay pay towards the towards the Saint Peter's Basilica. So, although many had issues, Luther is not. So don't don't get this idea that everybody else is like this is great. I'm glad that we're doing this and rebuilding Saint Peter's Basilica. There's a lot of people who this is awful and they're seeing it politically and financially, right? You're taking money out of Germany to build a church in Rome that we're never going to see or enjoy. People aren't traveling to Rome. Ordinary people aren't going to benefit from this whatsoever. And a lot of people see this as sort of superstitious nonsense. But Luther is going to end up, it's not his original intention, he's going to end up going to toe with Rome over this. Whereas a lot of people, Erasmus, we'll talk about Erasmus later, Erasmus saw that there's a lot of corruption in the church but he wanted. He think he thought the church needed a bath. That's the way he would phrase it. It needed to just be cleaned up. Whereas Luther is going to end up going to toe to toe with theological differences, and that's a big difference between Luther's approach and Erasmus's approach. So anyway, although many had issues with this, 
Luther was, uh, that's supposed to, I, I meant that to be, Luther was especially affected, not effective, sorry. So in response, he wrote his famous 95 Theses. Now, if you read the 95 Theses, they're really focused on indulgences and relics. They're not focused on grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone or scripture alone. Th those aren't his issues yet, right? His issues have to do with the corruption, the relics, uh, the indulgences. And he may have nailed these to the door of his church. He actually almost for sure didn't nail them because people didn't nail things in those days to, to doors. He might have glued them to the door of the church, which is a little less dramatic. But there's some debate whether he actually even put it on the door of the church uh, in the first place. Luther never said that. It was like 30-something years later that that story was first told of Luther dramatically going up and nailing these, these 95 theses to the door. I think Luther was more... Um, was more timid than that at this point. Um, Luther mailed these to um, the archbishop in the region. Um, he mailed them to a couple of, of other people. And this was more, there's some misuses and abuses going on that need to be cleaned up. This wasn't, I'm standing against Rome and starting a revolution, going to split the church and the Pope is a hair. He's not doing that yet. <laughs> he's, kinda, he's going to come there, but he doesn't start that way, right? So his his original intention is, there's corruption that needs to be worked out here. He saw these things, and, and in his thesis, he said that they're harmful to the Pope. They give the Pope a bad name, and they undermine his credibility. So he, he's appealing to the church for the sake of the church still at this point. Uh, but because of the power of the printing press, so this I don't, I don't think the Reformation would have happened at this point if the printing press hadn't been invented. Somebody, whether they pull it off the door of the church in Germany, if he actually put it up there, or they got a copy of it, Somebody starts making copies, and trans it's in German, <laughs> starts sending it everywhere, and now all of a sudden, everybody's talking about it, and it's not a private debate, it's now becoming very public, and the church has to respond, right? So, um, let's see, Ketzel is the first guy to react, that's the traveling evangelist, he demanded that Luther be burnt as a heretic, this, this is his response. Luther needs to be burnt uh, as a heretic. He argued that indulgences were superior to acts of love because self-love is superior to love of neighbor. Um, this, is, this was the basis of his argument. Um, and the Pope began to take steps to arrest Luther. So the Pope confers his honor on um, Luther's prince. And that was to kind of set the stage of when you hand over Luther, remember I did this for you, that sort of thing. So the Pope hasn't, isn't going to arrest him yet, but he's starting to, to work that direction. And the church worked up their response. So in 1519, Luther debated Johann Eck. And Johann Eck was a, like a, an expert debater, I guess you could say. Um, his, his actual name uh, means corner, which is kind of funny. And so Eck is going to try to corner Luther. Uh, and he actually does. So in some ways, this debate will, will turn Luther into a Protestant. In some ways, it's really the beginning of Luther becoming a Protestant because what Eck is doing is showing him, this is where your ideas are taking you. And so Luther has to either say, well, my ideas are wrong, or go that, go that direction. Yes, you see what I'm saying? So, um, so there's, there's some funny moments in these debates, but Eck keeps arguing with Luther that really this is, comes down to authority. So you're saying that the Pope is wrong, but the Pope commissioned this. So who are you to say that the Pope is, is wrong? Um, and Luther is arguing of, on the sake that the scriptures say these things. And so what Eck is saying is, you're, you're arguing that the scriptures are supreme authority over the Pope. 
and that your interpretation of the scriptures over the Pope. So who, who can condemn the Pope's authorization? Um, who are you? And Eck accused Luther of being a Hussite. And so if you remember last time, Jan Hus was this guy that stood up against the, the Pope and the Pope's, corrupt, uh, Pope's corruption. That was his, one of his main arguments. And Luther's like, no, I'm not a Hussite. And then during the lunch break, basically, he goes and he reads the Council of Constance and about Hus, and he comes back and he's like, yes, I am a Hussite. <laughs> so he's like, okay, I accept the charge. Now, that's a brave thing to say because Jan Hus was burnt at the stake, right? <laughs> this isn't just like, oh, yeah, I, I agree with him. I think he was right. Wow, this is a bold stance. And again, Hus's main thing was arguing for scripture over the, the Pope, that the Pope was wrong, that papal authority was corrupt, and scripture was speaking to it. So he, he's, he kind of got cornered um, with the, the re results of his ideas, and he's going to stick with it. Okay? So he's arguing, so if the Pope, so this changes his approach. If the Pope's word trumps God, then man was sovereign, not God. And one of Luther's favorite phrases was, let God be God. And man is man, let God be God. So this, is, this begins a new way for, for um, Luther to argue. All right, another stopping point, because I know I'm doing a lot of the talking. But any, any thoughts or questions or reflections up to this point? Mm, okay, so I'm going to keep moving then. So, we are at the bottom of the, what, the second page? Luther's thought and early writing. So, it's also around this time. And one of the things I'm, I'm hoping from this class, so in some sense I'm giving you tastes, right, of, uh, of people in history. And I, I think there's really something beneficial to reading people of the past. Luther is not uh, inerrant and inspired. Uh, there are things, wait, times I'm going to disagree with Luther and things I, I don't think Luther was right on. He definitely, there were some things personally in his life that I would not commend, but um, he's worth reading and he's worth interacting with. So I'm going to talk a little bit about some of his writings. Um, one, one book that I would, I would commend to you if, uh, if reading theology is something you'd like to get into, uh, Michael Reeves, he's the same guy that wrote the book on the Reformation that kind of is forming the, the backbone of the class, but Theologians You Should Know an introduction from the apostolic fathers to the 21st century. And Reeves kind of goes through um, Justin Martyr, Athanasius, Augustine, uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and kind of introduces you to their thought. And the whole point is to whet your appetite so you'll actually read the real sources. I think there's a lot of benefit to that. I've loaned that book out to a lot of people now, and maybe I could loan it to you. But anyway, moving I'm Again, I'm a book pusher, so be careful. <laughs> All right. Luther's Thought and Early Writings. Oh, and on that, again, a book. There's other ones. But this, if you wanted to read Luther, this is kind of I'm Luther's bookshelves full of writing. But this is kind of taking some of his important writing uh, put together by Don John, uh, John Dillenberger, which sounds German. Um, but yeah, some of those writings are in there. And the 95 Theses are in there, part of his commentary on Galatians and such. But... So, it's also around this time that Luther begins to come to the conclusion that salvation is by grace, that it's purely God's work and dependent upon God and not himself. So, salvation is not going to be dependent on, on Luther. Salva his salvation 
is dependent upon God. So Luther struggled with fearing and even hating God as he saw God primarily as his judge waiting to condemn him. I'm going to read you. This is, I think, from Luther's, straight from Luther's mouth here. So, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was, he, he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, the, the, the Ten Commandments. Having, uh, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. So his understanding of the gospel is not good news, it's his threat of, of God's wrath. Thus, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the words, uh, to the context of the words, namely, it is in the righteousness of God, um, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who lives through faith is righteous shall live. So he's, this is Romans 1.16 that he's meditating on and thinking of. The righteous shall live by faith. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. Meaning, by passive, it's not your own righteousness. It's a righteousness given to you that is your own by faith. Um, uh, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. So he's quoting Romans one uh, seventeen again. And here I felt that I was altogether born again and entered paradise itself through open gates. So this realization that's coming to this conclusion that salvation is a gift of God. It's something that's outside of him, given to him by God, is, is changes Luther's approach to God. And now he's going to feel like he can love God. He can feel like he can um, rest, right? And this, this frenetic pace um, that he had tried to, to, to endure before. So, but thinking, so going back to my notes here, so thinking about confession and forgiveness led him to the realization that if God had forgiven him, and here he actually said he went back to, to stop it, says, um, telling him that God is God has forgiven you, sort of thing. But if God had forgiven him, then salvation is dependent upon God. That it's God who says you are forgiven, not that I need to continue to earn it. God has said this to me. So not on his own sincerity, effort, sorrow at his sin, but on God's promise. So the question for Luther that he he came to, the question he needs to answer is: Would he in faith trust what God has said? Does he in faith believe in God's promise of forgiveness? So this is, this is really his realization. This is not overnight. So 1517, he nails, he, uh, at least metaphorically, nails the 95 theses to the church. Um, 1519, he comes to the conclusion that salvation is by grace alone and not by works. And this is, this is a, a huge shift for him. So he hasn't had all of his debates yet, uh, but he's moving in new, new directions for him anyway. So in 1520... Luther began to write, and he wrote three important works, and he's writing them um, kind of thumbing his nose, nose at convention at this point. 
because theological writings were supposed to be in Latin, because they're for the church. They're, these are church debates. Luther writes his works in German so that anybody can read them. And that, that's not really appreciated, by the way, because you're, you're stirring up the people. <laughs> you're causing this to be a big problem. Let's have an inner debate and figure this out. So he's, he is stirring the pot by doing this. But So here are his three important works he wrote. You can, you can read these today. You can find them. You could probably find them free on the internet because it's all public domain. But you could also find um, copies. So number one, to the Christian nobility of the German nation was an argument against the wall of separation between clergy and laity. And this, this is really one of the central issues of the um, Reformation. Calvin and, um, and others are going to build upon Luther here. But every Christian has the right to read scripture, not just the clergy. It's not just, it shouldn't just be for a few people. All people should have access to scripture. All Christian, any Christian has the right to say that the church is wrong and needs reform and call for a debate. Uh, so he, again, he's arguing for what's, this isn't the, he isn't here yet, but the, the priesthood of the believer, that every believer can, uh, can approach God and every believer can represent God to, to each other in that sense, because we're a nation of priests rather than there's a, a select group of priests through which you interact with God. Number two, the Babylonian captivity of the church is an attack on Rome's claim that the sacraments Again, only in the hands of the priests were conduits of God's saving grace. So you see how this relates, that if you want to receive God's grace, you have to receive the priests, the, the sacraments through the priests, right? So they're conduits of God's grace. But righteousness before God, he argued, could only be obtained by faith, and it's simply by faith. Also arguing from scripture, Luther cut the amount of legitimate sacraments from seven to two. So in the church at this time, there were seven sacraments. He's arguing the Lord's Supper and baptism are only sacraments. And at a later point, maybe we'll talk about even the word sacrament. Um, but this is, Luther's using it later in later Refor Reformation. People start talking about them as ordinances. And we have a different view maybe than Luther does here. But we'll leave it at that. And then number three, and this, this is really worth reading. But the freedom of the Christian. And he dedicated it to the Pope. And, it, and he, he actually doesn't mean it defiantly. It's, it's, it's like almost like trying to convert the Pope kind of thing. Um, but it's an attempt to change his heart and mind. In it, he argued that the church was a prostitute. He doesn't mean a Catholic church, he, a big C Catholic church. He means little C, the universal church. So, you know, Christians. Um, was a prostitute, guilty and unclean. But that when she married Christ, her position changed. She is now a queen. Um, and here, he, what his argument here is, is that her actions didn't change her status, but but that the king's marrying of her, the union with the king, changed her status, right? And the Christian, similarly, may still be a sinner, but in his position before God, he is righteous. So that, that's what he's he's arguing here. Let me read a little bit from Reeves, and then, like um, again, I think this is original quote from Luther. Hey, I was trying to keep my notes to four pages, so some quotes, you know, just read from the book. All right, this is a little long, but I, I think it's it's good. And I am short on breath again. I do think this does do that to me a little bit. So, in The Freedom of a Christian, Luther showed that because of his new understanding of the gospel, he was now operating with very different definitions of sin and faith. The things he understood to be sin, murder, adultery, etc., he now understood to be mere symptoms of the real problem, unbelief. This is the sin of the world, that it does not believe on Christ, 
Not that there is no sin against the law beside this, but this is the chief, the real chief sin, which condemns the whole world, even if it could not be charged with no other sin. The sinner could therefore be described as the man curved in on himself, or the man who looks to himself. For sin is not looking to Christ in trust, but looking to oneself. But that is precisely what all of his previous efforts at devotion had been, relying on himself. It was all this effort to earn it, all this effort that if I could rely on doing this and doing this and doing this and doing this, maybe I could get enough. In contrast, faith was no longer the mere ascent of going along to Mass, nor was it something to do. This is the easy mistake to make when thinking of justification by faith alone. It can sound as if, instead of all the old works and penances, faith is now the one thing we must do, even work hard at, to be saved. The danger, then, would be that we would fall straight back into Luther's old tortured introspection, wondering if, we, if we're if we doing the act of faith enough. So that you see where he's, where he's going here. Um, sorry, I lost my spot. There we go. It might be more helpful to describe what Luther discovered as justification by God's word, instead of justification by faith, because it is God's word that justifies here, not our faith. We're not justified because we've earned it through faith. We're justified by the, the declaration of God that we're forgiven, that, that idea. Um, faith, thought Luther, is not some inner resource we must summon up, as if it, if it were, it would be, by his definition, be sin. If, we're tr- if we just need to have faith enough, that's actually, again, relying on our own effort. Um, so for him, the question, have I got enough faith, completely misunderstands what faith is by looking to and relying on himself rather than Christ. Faith is a passive thing, simply accepting, receiving, believing Christ, taking God seriously in what he promises in the gospel. Now, this is radically different than what the church taught in in this day. So it's faith um, working together with the sacraments, working together with your works that you can achieve salvation is the idea. They would say it's grace, but it's, 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 there's a, oh, oh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It works together. There's a word I'm looking for, but I'm not coming up with it. But anyway, the symbiosis, symbiosis that works. I don't think that was the word, but that's a good word. I'll take it. So there's a symbiosis between faith and works that it, it there's cooperation. That's the word I was looking for. Cooperation between faith, um, and works. Uh, and any thoughts or questions up to this point, again, or discussion, you see, Luther's actually moved a lot from where he was, and it's not overnight, but it's as he's thinking and um, reflecting on the, the consequences of some of these thoughts. Yeah, just um, going back to, like, Tetzel and some of the things that the Pope commissioned, like raising money for St. Peter's, um, it feels like Luther's efforts to sort of um, help reform that um, it, it's it's unfortunate that those weren't received better because mm-hmm. I mean if the Pope commissions something, does that make him responsible for everything that person does or uh-huh. says? I mean, yeah. it, it feels like the Pope is committed to defending whatever happens uh-huh. as a ro- result of his commission. And Luther's trying to say, um, look, you might want to be aware of this mm-hmm. so that the Church can be right. you know um, seen as a light. Right, and and this is where I would say that the Church by some of the theology, and I, I think I've used this phrase before, but it became unreformable. Because once you say the authority of the Pope is absolute, you can't back that train up. So anything that has been like official doctrine of the, the church up to this point is right. <laughs> if you disagree, you're wrong. And so that's where Eck is cornering Luther. He's saying, you're disagreeing with the authority of the Pope. 
um, you don't have that right. And Luther is forced to saying, well, but scripture. (laughs) And so then he's saying scripture is supreme rather than the authority of the Pope. And there's, 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 it's an impasse. So it's, I, I think there were some hopes early in the Reformation by Luther and especially Erasmus, who maybe we'll talk about a little bit later, um, that we could clean up the church and take out the corruption. Yeah, but it kind of was almost impossible to do. Wouldn't wouldn't the ch- modern Catholic Church say that um, there can be corruption mm-hmm. in the church today? Wouldn't they say that? Yeah, they, no, they're forced to really. There's certainly corruption, um, but where they what they haven't backed up and what they can't is on official doctrine. Right. So the the church has looked in the past and said that there were things that the church did that was wrong, right? Um, I mean, recently they did that with Galileo, for instance. But they can't do that with anything that came ex-cathedra from the, from the chair. Now here, this wasn't something that was ex-cathedra from the chair, but it, it became a question about authority. And so Luther is saying, Scripture is supreme authority, not the Pope. And that's where Eck wanted him to get, because Eck is trying to show you're wrong. <laughs> and Luther is saying, no, I'm not. <laughs> so it, that's, it became a different debate than it started. And actually, I mean, in some ways, I think Eck pushed Luther there. And in that way, in a good, it's a good thing, I think. But good. Any other thoughts or questions? Okay. I, yeah, I don't want to make any statements, but I am not getting as much air as I thought I would with the shield. All right. Open the window behind you? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I thought last week it was the smoke. That's what I thought. Maybe it's not just the smoke. Maybe that'll help. Okay, so Rome's response. Rome's response. So in 1520, so this is three years later. I mean, not three years later after these writings. It's about a year after, uh, well, it's the same year as some of these were written. But um, three years after the, the 95 Theses moment. So there's been some time. The Pope issued a bull, a papal bull, condemning Luther, and he gave him 60 days to recant or face excommunication. And excommunication is also like probably a death sentence because at that point, the the church doesn't actually prosecute you and execute you. The state does that, but it's like no one can give you any sort of shelter or such at that point. So it would would lead to his execution. But this hardened Luther's response. It it, it isn't, Luther's not going to be moved by this. And Luther's kind of one of those like pit bull kind of personalities. He has his teeth set in something, and he's 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 going to hold on and not back down. Um, so um, there had been no attempt. This was his what he kept saying, and what he's frustrated with is there's been a, no attempt to counter my ideas with scripture at all. But it it just is you keep appealing to the Pope's authority, but there's no attempt to actually show me that I'm wrong. <laughs> you, you haven't used good arguments to show me that I'm wrong. So he responded, how's this for a, a nice title? Against the execrable ball, bull of the Antichrist. <laughs> the Antichrist is the Pope. So against the execrable bull of the Antichrist. And he publicly threw the bull into a carrion pit outside of Wittenberg. He invited the city to come witness this. And he takes a lot of the, the, church, the books of canon law, the church books, throws them into the carrion pit. So he's, he's not backing down if you didn't pick up on that. So then he's, he's called to Worms, um, Worms, I think it's how you'd say it in German, but by the Holy Roman em, em, uh, Emperor. So it's, this is, again, this is a public 
trial, the church is there. The church is arguing that Luther is a heretic. Um, but it's the government that decides that you are going to get executed or killed or those sorts of things. So he's already been excommunicated. So this is where he made his famous here I stand speech, although it's probable he didn't actually say that either. I know that's kind of here I stand. Um, he probably didn't actually say that phrase. But here's, here is his most famous moment kind of at the end. He's recalling, he's saying, I will recant, but you got to show me I'm wrong by the scriptures. That's what he's saying. So unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone. And as you see, this is really, this is the key thing here. The Pope and councils aren't enough. You have to show me by scripture, um, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Oh, this is this is Luther coming down to the end here. And he's saying this, looking, being burned at the stake in the eye. Right? So that's, that's what you do with heretics. You, that's what happened to John Huss. He already said, yes, I am a Hussite. This is what Luther's looking in the eye is likely to happen to him. So this is... This is, takes guts um, to do this. So the emperor is not impressed with Luther, and he wants Luther to be condemned and put to death. Luther doesn't wait for his arrest. He's going back to, to Wittenberg, but that's not probably going to give him shelter. But somebody else swoops in, and this is kind of a dramatic moment. So on his way back to Wittenberg, Luther is kidnapped. <laughs> he was. It was a, like a, a, it looked like a gang of robbers attacks his wagon. They take Luther... Um, um, I think he was blindfolded, if I remember correctly, to, to this castle. And it's his, his, it's kind of the prince of the region. It's his elector, Frederick the Wise, who's like, you're not killing my monk. I like him. So he takes him. He takes him to this castle. He dresses him up as a knight. Luther grows a beard and grows his hair out. So, you know, the monks in those days, they just had a, a thin layer of hair that went around. And you cut the middle of your hair out, which... It's a weird style. <laughs> so it's not like, you know, you have hair all around and then the middle of the hair is gone. But anyway, he grows his hair out. He grows a beard, which is awesome, I think. Um, and he dresses like a knight, um, which is also awesome. Uh, dressing like a knight is pretty cool. And um, so he became known as Sir George. I, I mean, that's really cool. This is, he's a knight now. I, I, I don't know. That's, I like that. But during this time, Luther takes Erasmus's Greek New Testament. We talked about that a little bit last time. So Erasmus came out with a Greek New Testament um, and was comparing it to the Latin Vulgate and saying that there's there's some there's mistakes in the in the translation that the the church has been using up to this point. And some of the foundation for some of the um, their doctrines were were uh, based in mistaken translations, right? So this was this was huge to Luther and Calvin and all these guys. Again, we'll talk about Erasmus in a minute. Later on, he would translate the Old Testament. But during this time, 11 months, and I don't know, I've done translation in, in Greek class before, but translating the whole New Testament in 11 months is quite a feat, actually. <laughs> um, but he translates it into German. And really, in terms of German literature and German language, it's maybe even more so than the King James and Shakespeare. You know, King James and Shakespeare kind of formed the uh, the basis, the English language in a lot of ways, right? The, the German Bible that Luther translated is, is huge in German language and standardizing it. It's considered to be rather beautiful. So he did a good job with it. 
And he keeps writing letters of encouragement to his followers and those fomenting the Reformation ever elsewhere. So he's kind of been hiding out in secret, dressed up like a knight with a beard, sending out letters. But during this time, he also started to experience doubts of his salvation, God's love again. It was this moment that actually probably didn't happen. The, uh, again, sorry if I'm taking away fun moments, but it's I think if you see the castle today that he was at, there's... There's this like ink blot on the floor that people say this happened, but they say he threw an ink blot, uh, ink uh, well at the devil, and all that. He, that didn't happen, probably. That was hundreds of years later that people said that, but um, he did see these doubts as doing battle with Satan. That Satan is trying to, to bring doubts about his salvation, bring doubts about God's love, and he sees it as this very personal battle with Satan that he's doing in this castle. And um, anyway. So, after 11 months, so Luther returns to Wittenberg. And part of the reason he returns to Wittenberg is some of his followers are taking his ideas in places he didn't want it to go. They're, they're burning churches, they're, they're dragging um, priests out during, during mass, uh, they're, they're violent, violent attacks. So he wants to stop all this. Um, the problem, Luther argued, is the heart. It's not the, it's not the images, it's not the physical church buildings, it's not the priests, it's, it's the heart. So Luther comes back and he, he, he starts leading the church in, in the region at this point. So he rewrites the liturgies and the point of the liturgies is moving it to scripture so that scripture is being preached to the people and that people have the Bible uh, in their, in, not only in their hands and in their hearts, but they're also being preached to it, uh, preached it from, from God's word. He wrote hymns. His most famous hymn is A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And he, again, singing was usually something for the, the clergy, not the laity. The laity didn't participate in singing, but he's saying no. So we sing in our church service. That really starts in large part with Luther. That's a Lutheran idea. Um, and he begins setting up preachers of the word of God in cities across Germany. So he starts, you know, almost like training people, sending them out. And um, he's, you're, and the, the main thing he's emphasizing is preaching directly from God's word. Right? That's his, that's his deal. Luther also um, began facilitating, I think this is kind of funny, but the emptying of monasteries and nunneries, and he starts um, smuggling nuns out of convents. A lot of times, um, a lot of times you would have sometimes wealthy young women who would be sent to a, a nunnery, or they're, they're kind of, they're, they're not really deciding to do this, or if you were an orphan, maybe you would go. There's all kinds of different reasons you might be put into nunneries. Um, but he personally, this one um, convent, that he, he sent, I forget what it was, um, somebody that sold something, but I can't remember what, but had barrels and stuff in the back of his wagon, but they, they, the, the nuns hid in the, hid in the back of the wagon and they covered it up. And I mean, again, it's like spy stuff and, and, uh, and came back. Um, let's see. So there were, there were nine nuns that escaped from this convent. He brought them back to Wittenberg and then he starts finding husbands for them. Um, this is, I, I don't really think this is the most romantic way to, to meet somebody, but um, he found husbands for eight, and he couldn't find a husband for the ninth, so he marries her. <laughs> okay, <laughs> what does that say? I don't know. Um, we'll leave we we'll leave that alone. But he married Katarina von Bora in 1525. They end up having five children. They run a brewery for, out of their home, and Luther very frequently had theological conversations over you know a pint of beer. This was that's kind of he that's kind of part of what he did. The brewery helped helped him. Uh, he sold the beer, and it helped him uh, pay his expenses. So this was part of part of Luther's vision. Again, that whole sin boldly sort of thing too. Sometimes, 
but he led the Reformation um, from from Wittenberg. So, any any questions, thoughts, remarks up to this point? Yeah. Just a couple tidbits. Um, I have heard that um, Luther is the one who began the tradition of capitalizing nouns in German. Oh, I didn't know that. He had held a um, high, very high view of creation, of course. Mm -hmm. So he capitalized nouns, and they still do that. Hmm. Um, also, um, I've heard that a mighty fortress is our God. Um, it sounds very different from most of the chanting that the mm. monks mm -hmm. used to do. And that's because um, it was probably set to a beer drinking song. That, that's actually true of a lot of the old hymns. Mm -hmm. um, I hope that doesn't, you know, like take any of their joy away. But they were often, the, the kind of the point of a lot of that was had to do with... Um, it, yeah, it, it needed to be something that the people could sing. Right. So, um, regardless of, I mean, I, so one of my important convictions about congregational singing and worship is um, it should be congregational singing. That that's kind of my thing. And a lot of the the older hymns they were they were popular tunes that people could sing along to, mm -hmm. um, rather than you know, I. In, I, I have problems if we if our singing becomes performance based. It's it's just the musicians. It should be something that we can sing along to, and I, I think we do that here. And I like I appreciate that. But um, then I mean the the Gregorian chants are not easy to sing, and they're they are they're designed for specialized singing for for monks and and things. So yeah, that that there's a there's a theology to using drinking songs, even though it sounds very, <laughs> like, almost, yeah, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah, good. Any other, yeah? Yeah, uh, just an observation that it seems that the impasse between Luther and papal authority goes to the foundation from which they're arguing. Mm -hmm. The papal authority are arguing from the basis of foundation of the pope is with Right, no, absolutely. Extra future. Mm-hmm. Right. They couldn't get beyond that. They, there was no chance for them to actually come to an agreement mm -hmm. because of that foundational difference. Yeah, I, I, I think that's really where, like, sola scriptura, which we'll talk about later more in depth, is is the foundational issue. At least, it's everything else builds from that. And I don't think Luther started there. I think Luther starts by seeing corruption and calling it out, but then the response is papal authority. And he, he's like, you haven't actually you know, convinced me of anything. And he's still arguing this. And I, again, Eck cornered him, and that's a pun. Um, Eck cornered him into saying, no, scripture is, is authoritative over the Pope. And in Eck's mind, he's like, ha ha, I caught you. And Luther's like, yeah, I am a Hussite. So, so what? <laughs> so that's kind of that's kind of where it led. Again, I don't think Luther started there, but the debate led there inevitably. And um, yeah, you got to ask that question, and that's really, I, I think, a foundational Protestant Catholic question: is where does authority lie? Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah. I think it's kind of ironic, also, that um, his father wanted him to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And Luther ended up 
arguing using um, the text, yeah. like lawyers do. Yep. And I wonder if his dad ever thought, oh. I think his dad was dead by that point. Oh. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> but yeah, there was no like emotional, yeah. uh, heartwarming father-son hug at the end of the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Richard. Uh, yeah, uh, so I went to a, a Lutheran uh, graduate school, so mm. like Lutheran University. Mm -hmm. And um, the school is sort of strayed far away from the like the gospel message. Mm -hmm. But uh, I talked to one of my professors about what is the Lutheran part of our, our school, mm -hmm. and and he said that the legacy of Luther for for the school that, that remains, which is not necessarily the Christian legacy, is just um, the idea of um, free thought, challenging, mm. um, established authority, um, literacy, and those kind of ideals you know, taken away from the the gospel message are still held as like kind of like mm -hmm. ideals of the school. I thought that was interesting. I think Luther would have hated that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean Luther Luther is not arguing for, you know, free ideals and free yeah, that's not at all what he's thinking. And again, he's also still a medieval person. Right. Um, but yeah, that's more the enlightenment. Yeah, exactly. Than it is Luther. He became yeah. symbolic of that. Yep. But mm -hmm. he wouldn't have and similarly Jan Hus uh, is still revered in mm -hmm. Prague. There's a monument to him, and they, the people there, there's a lot of atheism mm -hmm. and a lot of enlightenment type. Yep. But but Hus is still thought of as a as a you know respected figure because yeah. he stood against the authority in the church, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I think one thing we need to be careful of as Protestants um, is that, and Catholics will sometimes argue and. Maybe there's something to this argument, but that the, what what the um, that Protestantism leads to the Enlightenment leads to Enlightenment thinking, um, and a lot of Protestantism, like Lutheranism and a lot of Presbyterians and Methodists, there there really are post Enlightenment um, thinking. So we not every single thing in the Enlightenment is wrong, but we need to reject some of the Enlightenment. <laughs> whereas I'm, we're still Protestant, because we're you know I would I would go, but. I don't know how much we'll talk about the Enlightenment. Probably not much, unless you, you guys force me to. I have a lot of things to talk about in nine weeks. <laughs> I'm kind of ending with, you know, the English Reformation. But. Last thing, I've heard that accusation from Catholics. That yeah. You Protestants are more about protesting than you are about anything mm -hmm. in a positive sense. Right. And, and I wouldn't want that. No, I wouldn't want Yeah. yeah. Again, my, my point is, I mean, we can't talk about this class without talking about the events of the Reformation and how Protestants and Catholics are different. But my, my point is not for this class to be anti-Catholic, that it is pro-Protestant ideas. Like, why we're Protestant is the class. It's not why we're not Catholic. But you can't talk about being Protestant without some of that, too. It's, it's in, it, they're married together in that sense. But good. All right. Anything else before we move on? Luther and Erasmus? All right, so Erasmus. Let's go back to Erasmus a little bit. Erasmus is almost a forerunner of Luther in some ways, but he, and at first he likes what Luther's doing because um, Erasmus is somebody who, he, he sees the, the essence of Christianity actually having to do with being a good person. You know, it's, it's, it's about, it's a moralistic religion. That's, that's, I think that would be fair to say about Erasmus. So Erasmus is really troubled by the corruption in the church, and he, he thinks this is awful. And so Luther is coming out against the corruption in the church, and Erasmus originally is supportive of Luther, 
But now Luther's blowing things up, and Erasmus does not like this at all. Erasmus is like, Luther, you've lost. Um, um, I don't remember where. I read this. I know where I read it, but I, I won't be able to find it. Um, but Erasmus was about to die, or he thought he was, um, around the time of Luther's, you know, about the time of Luther's movement. And he didn't want to die because he thought, saw that this is the beginning of, like, the greatest time in Christian history. We're going to clean up the church and all this sort of thing. And then 20 years later, he's still alive. He's not dying. And he said, this has been the worst century in Christian history. (laughs) He did not like the direction it went. So he went from very optimistic about the, the, you know, church, the church, um, and pessimistic about his own life to, okay, now I am alive, but I wish I died basically. So Erasmus isn't appreciating some of this. So, um, around this time, Luther and Erasmus, begin having this pivotal public debate. It's public because they're publishing in German and um, languages it's being translated. It's not just between the two of them. So it's like you're writing a letter, but you're publishing it, right? So it's a public debate back and forth. And Luther usually didn't answer all these people who would write to him and tell him he was wrong, but he respected Erasmus. Erasmus, again, he's the guy who translated the the um, the Bible, or he, well, he did translate it, but he also came out with the Greek te- New Testament, tr- came out with a new uh, Latin translation. So Erasmus believed that the church needed a bath. That was kind of how he phrased it. The, the, ter- the church is dirty. It smells bad. It needs to be cleaned up. But that's not what you've done. <laughs> you've blown it to smithereens. Um, and you've broken the unity of the church. So Erasmus wanted to end the corruption and hypocrisy of popes, but you want to do away with Popes, you've moved off Reformation, and I think he's right. Luther is no longer reforming the church; it's a it's a break, right? So um, Luther wanted to do away with away with them. So Erasmus wrote "Freedom of the Will" um, in response to Luther, and an attempt to moderate the Reformation. So in it, he argued that although Luther was right to say that we cannot earn merit from God, um, but but God accepted our fumbling efforts. So our efforts are kind of not that great, but God's like this nice guy up there that, like, yeah, I'll accept it. It's kind of a pathetic attempt, but I'll accept your fumbling efforts. And Luther had gone too far in Erasmus's view, but to say that salvation rested on Christ and grace alone. Surely, he argued, like, come on, Luther, at least con- um, concede this point. God rewards good deeds. So Erasmus believed that Christianity was essentially moral, and he worried that Luther's extreme views would undermine Christian society and morality. So if you're saying it's by grace alone and by faith alone and by Christ alone, then people aren't going to live good moral lives. You're undermining the basis of Christian morality. So surely we we, we want to say that God is looking at our good works and our good deeds and rewarding them in some way. We need some basis for Christian morality. That's the essence of what Erasmus is saying. Um, Let's see here. I'm going to read from Reeves again. So Christianity to Erasmus was essentially morality with a minimum of doctrinal statements loosely appended. So the doctrine to him he saw, it's kind of hard to know exactly what the, what scriptures are saying in terms of doctrine. So that's secondary, but what's primary is morality. Um, Luther's attitude was very different. To him, Christianity was doctrine first and foremost. It's teaching, it's theology first and foremost. Because true religion was first and foremost a matter of faith. Faith is correlative to truth. So Christianity to Luther was a dogmatic religion or it was nothing. It has to do with truth and with scripture and with doctrine rather than just morality. 
Erasmus's con- uh, conception of an undogmatic Christianity and the humanist airy indifference to matters of doctrine seemed to him an essentially unchristian as anything well could be. And I think it's interesting we brought up the the um, uh, Enlightenment because I, I, I would actually say a lot of Protestantism, um, Lutheranism even, ends up being a lot more like Erasmus than Luther, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, so th- this kind of just, you know, be a good person, the the more the mind and morality is is essential rather than doctrine and truth so luther responded how do you like this freedom of the will erasmus writes what do you think luther's response is bondage of the will (laughs) and if anything luther is going to you know he's always he doesn't look for common ground so much he's just boom next week when we look at uh zwingli and luther's debate uh i think we'll see this in a very negative way where zwingli another um uh reformer disagrees with Luther about the nature of, of communion, of the Lord's Supper, uh, but wants to still work with Luther, and Luther's like, no, you're a heretic. I don't want anything to do with you. Um, and Zwingli's view of the Lord's Supper is like ours, so um, he wouldn't have liked us. He wouldn't have liked some of the things that we do when we do communion. But um, anyway, Luther responded with the bondage of the will. In it, he argued that although we do freely choose, we only freely choose evil. So, yeah, yeah, sure, we do have freedom of the will in some sense, but we freely choose to do evil, um, and without without the grace and work of God. So salvation is all God's work. There's no iota of it that's yours, and man doesn't contribute to it at all. And I, I think there's some debate in Luther's studies, but um, I see this pattern of Luther's positioning really hardening in debates. You know, almost like you, you talk you argue against Luther and he's he edges even more extreme than before, right? But um, anyway, so kind of an important uh, part of the history of the Reformation. But in 1530, Charles V, he's the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, he summons Luther to another council. And Luther doesn't go to the council himself because he's still, you know, under a papal bull. Um, but he, I don't remember how to pronounce this guy's name. I look it up about a dozen times and I never remember how to pronounce it. But Philip Melanchthon, is that right? Is it is? I think so. I'll just pretend like it's right. But Philip Melanchthon, he sends him, um, he's his friend, his colleague, his ally, he worked a lot with Luther, and uh, Melanchthon composed the Lutheran Confession of Faith that the emperor and all nine princes of the empire signed, um, and really the whole point of this, they're they afraid of Islam at this point, so the, the Holy Roman Emperor is like, we've got to be all on the same side, and comes to some sort of agreement. They don't really like this, but um, the, the emperor doesn't, but it's like, Okay, I'll sign it because we gotta all get together politically, um, and so really now Luther Lutheranism is becoming a political as well as theological force. One thing we haven't talked about a lot that maybe at some point bears talking about is the, how the state and um, the church related, and that was a big part. That's a big thought in Luther. Very, I mean, remember this is all pre-separation of church and state. That's a new idea relatively in Christian history. But anyway. Luther dies in 1546 at the age of 63, and on his deathbed, he's asked, Are you ready to die trusting in your Lord Jesus Christ and to confess the doctrine which you have taught in his name? And Luther apparently answered fairly loudly so that the whole room could hear, Yes. We talked about last words today in our uh, in, in Pastor Tyler's sermon, and he died soon afterward, and he was buried beneath his own pulpit. Oh, and that's kind of the life and, and some of the thought of, of Martin Luther. I put under there potential discussions based on, um, there's a lot of things we could talk about. 
But any any thoughts about Luther, his life, questions about his thought, his implications, or what we think about Luther today? Insights? All right, so I, I do I do want to at least go here because to me this is this is a trump a troubling aspect. Was it in here or was it in the other book? I think it was in the other book, but let me look. So Luther Luther and the Jews is is something that bears mention in a negative sort of way. Okay, yeah, this here's here's Reeves again, but. What probably turns more people away from Luther than anything else is his tract on the Jews and their lies. So it's not a not a very. I mean, we we've witnessed that Luther tends to have strong <laughs> titles, um, but trumpeted and used as traditional German virtue by the Nazis in the 20th century, it was displayed in glass case at Nuremberg rallies, and it's enough for many to dismiss Luther, Luther as an odious anti-Semite, and all of his theology is tainted at that point. Um, undoubtedly, it does contain horrible material, and one wishes he had died before writing it. Um, yeah. Um, you know, sometimes you're, you have heroes that have very ugly skeletons in their closet, I guess we could say. Um, however, not only was it written long after the Reformation breakthrough, after a change of heart towards the Jews, meaning that it is entirely inappropriate to tar all of his theology with its brush, but also the caricature is a distortion. So Reeve says there is no racism, was no racism involved. So in 1523, so uh, before this, he wrote that Christ was born a Jew, which is a critique of the common mistreatment of Jews by Christians. He de dedicated it to a converted Jew whom he had uh, befriended and whom he would later support financially and whose son he would house at great personal cost. Over the years, though, he detected and saw what he saw as a hardness of heart in unbelieving Jews in that they refused to acknowledge their own scriptures um, as pointing to, clearly to Christ. Finally, stung into action by some um, virulent Jewish apologists that attacked Christianity, in 1542 he wrote On the Jews and Their Lies. In it he argued first that being children of Abraham was always a spiritual matter, not one of genetics. He then went on to show from the Old Testament that Jesus must be the promised Christ. Only then did he move on to a notorious set of recommendations. While he condemned personal acts of vengeance, he argued that then-standard blasphemy laws should be applied to Jews, making their religion criminal. As such, Jewish synagogues and houses should be destroyed as um, hotbeds of blasphemy, and along with other blasphemers, the Jews themselves should be expelled. So, Reeves writes, It's hard for a modern audience not only to avoid reading late, later racial anti-Semitism into such unpleasant material, but also to understand that these were, at the time, standard measures taken against heretics. Luther is arguing for the powers of the state to be applied to uphold Christianity, and while his recommendations are repulsive, they had not come from a lack of spiritual concern. Concluding the work, he wrote, May Christ, our dear Lord, convert them mercifully and preserve us steadfastly and immovably in the knowledge of him, which is eternal life. Amen. Well, a couple things, just thoughts, and then if there's any discussions here, I'm willing to have it, but you... Um, you have to put Luther in his context. And I don't say that to justify it at all. I don't think there's anything justifiable by the things that Luther said. But the, the idea that we have today of freedom of religion and separation of church and state, freedom of the conscience, is completely foreign in Luther's category. When we talk about John Calvin, John Calvin's going to recommend a, uh, somebody who denied the Trinity be executed, be put to death. 
And a lot of times people look back at that and as a mark against John Calvin. This was fairly universal, right? Fairly universal in if somebody is a, a heretic or somebody is a blasphemer, somebody denies core Christian doctrine, um, that they need to be executed. Today, we have this belief in the freedom of religion and the freedom ideals. In some ways, it kind of starts with Luther, because Luther is arguing for the freedom of the conscience and saying, my conscience leads me this way, and therefore I defy papal authority, I defy church authority. When we get into, um, I don't think we'll actually get there, but some Baptist theology, Baptist theologians. Um, so Roger Williams is somebody actually to, to look at. But Roger Williams, um, he started the colony in Rhode Island. Um, really interesting guy. He was also an extreme guy. But he argued for the freedom of, of Native Americans. Um, he argued for the freedom of heretics. He's argued for the freedom of other people to practice their religions. And the, the, the negative thing for Roger Williams is his colony got inundated with all the crazy people. Uh, actually, <laughs> so like naked, he had, there would be people who would preach naked and they would stay in, in Rhode Island, go into Massachusetts where the Puritans were, do their, their preaching, come back into Rhode Island because he protected them. And Luther hated these, uh, not Luther, uh, Roger Williams hated these guys, but he's like, they have freedom of religion. Um, and he believed in this. But that is, that is hundreds of years later. It's hundreds of years later. So this, this idea that we have, I, I actually do think it traces to the Protestant Reformation in some ways. But Luther didn't have it, and nobody did. So Luther isn't seeing this, again, I'm not justifying it, in, in, like, a, in like a racial um, way so much as he's seeing it as it's blasphemy. Her you wouldn't call it heresy because it's not coming out of Christian theology. So you have to see him in his light. But it is ugly. I would all concede that at that point. But any last thoughts or comments or um, reflections on Luther before we wrap up? All right. So next week we will look at um, Ulrich Zwingli and uh, the Radical Reformation, um, which is going to begin in Switzerland and then move. Uh, I don't know how much of the Anabaptist I'll get to, but we'll talk some about the Anabaptist before we move on to Calvin and the English Reformation. And then we're going to, after that, we shift the class to thinking about theology, the ideas of the Reformation. So thank you very much for, for joining me. And um, I would love to pray for us and then let you guys go. Father, thank you um, for, for people in the past who, who did have the courage to, to stand up for truth. Um, that did have the courage to, to stand up for um, what they believed was right and um, to speak truth to power in a very real sense. Uh, Father, we also acknowledge um, as we think about Luther's failings, we, we talked about one, one way, there are others. We think about Luther's failures. Um, Father, we know that we are also um, prone to, to fail and maybe in, maybe in ways that we're blind to. So Father, we ask for, we ask for, um, for conviction where we need conviction and insight into where our own thoughts are, are, are far from yours. Our own beliefs are far from yours. Father, we ask for that, that grace and that mercy. Father, also, as we think about Luther's thought, we are, we are grateful that we are not saved by our works, that we're not saved by um, having to earn your favor and your merit and your love, but that we're, we're saved um, by grace and by grace alone. And we're, we're so thankful for that truth. Thank you. Um, thank you for sending us your son and that our sins were paid for by him, and that our salvation is, is a gift. 
and we we're, we praise you and thank you for that. Um, Father, again, as we as we do this study, um, Father, we want to we want to learn from people of the past. Um, we also know that the people we're studying are not perfect, and that their thoughts are not necessarily um, perfect and inerrant. So, um, Father, um, teach us truth as we study. Help us to be um, encouraged in our belief of what is true, um, but help us to avoid um, the errors of those in the past um, and help us to rely upon upon you and, and you alone. And we pray in your son's name and by the spirit. Amen.